0: If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to meet me in Esther chapter five, Esther chapter five. We're going to be looking at verses nine through 14. We're basically going to close out Esther five today. Uh, so go ahead and get your Bible out. Let's get ready to dive in this morning. So here's how I would like to introduce this text. All right. We are going to, uh, as you're making right there, I know some people get very uncomfortable speaking in a church setting i get that from from the outset all right uh, ben bergeron in fact once made a comment he said that uh, the two greatest fears of somebody's life is dying in public speaking uh, granted he had no statistics to back that up but it actually plays in my point very well here for what i'm trying to say right so we, we get nervous speaking in public so here's how we're going to do this i'm going to read the text and at the end when i get done reading the text as i'm reading it i want you to be asking yourself this question what sin is Haman acting out? What is he acting on? What is the sin? What would you call it that you see in his life in this text? And at the very end, uh, when I get done reading it, I'm going to ask all of you collectively just to give me your answer. So I don't want one answer. Everybody, I'm going to say basically one, two, three, and you're all going to shout it out. So for example, all right, if we see Haman bowing to a wooden image, we would say that that is the sin of Idolatry. Well, good, so you got how this would work out. Alright, so let's read together. Ask yourself that question. At the end, we are going to respond to the text. Esther 5.9 And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow, also, I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. And in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea, pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So, what sin, you had to define it down to one word, what sin is leading or causing Haman to rage against and desire to murder Mordecai? All right, here we go. Ready? One, two, three. Hopefully, you all said pride. Because that's exactly the sin we see coming out in this text. When we are looking at this text, the author is showing us. the sin of pride and all its ugliness. Did you know that the Bible addresses the topic of pride on multitude of levels? Let me give you six real quick. On the wisdom level. Solomon and all of its infinite wisdom. This is what he says about, about pride. One's pride will bring him low. But he who is lowliest in spirit will obtain honor. How about the demonic level of pride? Isaiah 14.12 How you are fallen from heaven, O day, star of dawn. It's talking about Satan. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. How about the destructive level of pride? Once again, we get this from Proverbs. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, I want you to take that Proverbs 16, 18, and I want you to tuck it away in your brain because you are going to actually see this proverb play out in real time in the following chapters of Esther. How about the judgment level? The God says, I will punish the world for its evil. And the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant. And lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. What about the worldly level of pride? For all that is in the world. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. And pride of life is not from the father. But is from the world. 1 John 2. What about the deceptive level of pride? The pride of your heart has deceived you. Obadiah 3 says, You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Do you see the destructive level of the sin of pride from these verses of scripture? If you take nothing else today away from my sermon, I pray you take this one thing away. Pride is a killer. Pride is a killer. It has the ability to not only kill you, but also kill those around you. Pride destroys not only the relationships that we have in our lives, but also our relationship with God. C.S. Lewis wrote, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti God state of mind. And I believe, and many of you I think would concur, that pride exists heavily outside the confines of our church walls. It's one of the underlying sins in our culture. I am God, I do what I want but let me be frank with you. I believe pride also has a real presence sitting in our chairs right now. And I say that to you with all humility and love because this is one of those sermons where Piper said, John Piper once said that every, all preaching is hypocritical because this is one of those sermons where I feel like my own hypocrite. Because this is one of the sermons where when I'm studying and reading, I'm like, oh my gosh, Lord, I think you're talking to me. And probably at the end of this day, God's probably going to talk more to me than you. So I'm just going to let you in on the conversation. You're welcome. You see, pride as we have seen in our preceding passage and the passage before us is evil. And in some ways it is the root cause of even our own sinfulness. In other words, every time you and I sin against God. As Christians, we are taking on an anti-God state of mind. When we sin against God and others, we are ultimately saying to God out of the pride of our hearts, I actually know better than you. I am better than you. In fact, I'm so, I'm so good. I'm so much to the God of my own life that I'm going to say this word. I'm going to do this deed. I'm going to think this thought because in my mind right now, I'm above you, Lord. But pride has an evil way of not only impacting our own hearts and lives, it has an evil way of impacting those around us. Lewis says that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive in that it seeks to place yourself in a position above everyone else. And pride, one of the reasons that I think we like the idea of pride in our lives is because there is moments of our pride where we get satisfaction we get pleasure. We get joy out of being better than others. Yet, I will tell you that we're going to see in this text that our pride is very fickle. Our joy and pleasure are fickle because someone else will come along that might knock our pride down. And when that happens, we turn into an emotional roller coaster spiraling out of control. So, question that I want to ask and I want you to ask yourself with me. Do we have pride in our lives today? Here's how you can gauge that question. C.S. Lewis, once again, is very helpful. He writes and asks, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or patronize me or show off? In other words, what happens if somebody else gets the kudos and you don't? How does that make you? feel. I think in some ways, feelings give us a barometer into the effect of how much pride we actually have in our lives. Now, if you're sitting there and you're saying to yourself, well, I'm the humblest man alive. That's called false pride. It's actually worse than pride. A man is never more proud as when striking an attitude of humility Perhaps an example to help you understand how pride resonates or plays itself out in our lives. So you can kind of get where we're going today in this text. And you can see the effects of how pride not only impacts you, but also impacts others. So there's a great movie out called Glory Road. One of my favorite basketball movies to watch. Right behind Pistol Pete. And in Glory Road, there's a scene where Don Haskins, the coach, he goes to, uh, his name is Orston Artis. And Artis is in the gym and he's playing basketball and all of his friends and the girls are watching him play basketball and he's dribbling and, and shooting and everything. And uh, and so Coach Haskins goes and he's like, I'm trying to recruit you to come play for me. And he's like, no, I'm not going to go play college basketball. He's like, I'm too good. I'm going to go play with the Harlem Grove Riders." And so Haskins sees the pride in this young man. The pride where the, the man is not thinking, Coach Haskins could actually help me become a great basketball player. Instead he's thinking, no, I'm better than you, Coach. I know more about the game than you do. Coach Haskins turns to him in front of all of his friends and he says these words. He's like, yeah, that's probably a good thing. Because all, with all that body movement, you probably couldn't get past an old timer like me. And immediately, I love the actor who plays this guy, his face drops. Because what did, what did Coach just do? Pop that pride bubble a little bit. I guess it's probably good you go play for the Harlem Globetrotters because you couldn't play college ball. You couldn't even beat a college old college coach like me. Now his feelings are hurt. Now he, not only did he do it to him, but he also did it in front of all the girls. Right? You don't want that to happen. Young guys, you, won't, you know what I'm talking about. And so what does he have to do? He's got to Respond. He's got to respond to pick his pride back up and I love his, I love what he says. He says, get past you. I'll go past you, through you, over you, under you, around you. As a matter of fact, I will spin you like a top, twist you in a pretzel, eat your lunch, steal your girl, and kick your dog all at the same time. I'm like, that's exactly what pride looks like. Pride is not something that just hurts us. It's something that hurts Everyone around us. Pride is a killer. Pride makes us fragile, not strong. And Haman is going to show us the fragile nature of our pride, of our ego. And my prayer this morning is that you and I would take an honest look at our souls. That by God, through the power of His Holy Spirit, will confront and comfort us through the power of the Gospel. That God would reveal those areas in our hearts where we are prone towards pride and may the gospel knock them down to the right level. You see, I don't want to end this sermon with you just being beat up like I was. Like, oh, I'm so proud. I'm just, I'm done for. So I'm going to give you the remedy to our pride at the end. And it's going to be sprinkled throughout. Do you know what the remedy of pride is? Jesus. Just spoil alert that for you right now. So let's look at pride's destructive power. Let's look at how it works in our lives with the goal of God convicting us of our own sinful pride to show us the greatest need that we have in this life is the salvation through His Son, Jesus. So number one, when we look at verse 9, the first thing we can take away about pride is this. Pride can give us temporary joy. Pride can give us temporary joy. In verse 9, at the very beginning, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Listen, everybody in this room wants joy in life. We are looking for things that make us, to use the common vernacular, happy. And Haman comes out of this feast and he is happy. The text, in fact, indicates he is joyful and glad of heart. The idea with those words in the original language is the idea that he has think in his mind that he has found pure joy, and he found pure joy because of what he experienced in his position in society. Think quickly with me of what we've seen about Haman's position in his society and his status from Esther chapter really 3 all the way into this text today. First, Haman was like the prime minister of Persia. He was like the vice president. He was second really only to the king. Number two, everyone in the, in the kingdom was commanded to bow down to him. The king said, you will bow down to Haman as my second in charge. Third, he was the only guy invited to the feast with the king and his queen. And then fourth, at the end, he was invited back the next day. Most likely, I think we can make a good argument for this, he was also very proud of his wealth. He was probably a very wealthy man. And all of these these factors into his life, he's like, man... I'm I'm good. I, I find complete joy in all that I have and all that I'm able to do. But yet, pride is a temporary joy. Why? Because it's fickle. It's not an everlasting joy because there's always a moment when our pride is popped, when our pride is messed with, that we fall down. That we get angry and we get mad. And it was the moment for Haman, it was the moment that he sees Mordecai. He sees Mordecai. After all this that he's just gone through, and he's like, I'm mad. It says at the very end of verse 9, he was filled with wrath. That's how angry he was. And as we're going to see, he was so mad that he was willing to kill him for it. Something of seeming insignificance, Mordecai's existence, hurt his pride to a level that he came spiraling out of control. Now, many of us, we think in our minds, like, this is just a hyperbolic example. Our pride is not that bad, right? Well, of course pride is that bad. Pride has the ability to put us on an emotional roller coaster. When we find temporary joy and satisfaction in our status or whatever we have, something's going to come along that's going to knock that joy down because pride cannot give you an everlasting joy. And the reason that it can't give you an everlasting joy is because you're not God. Let me say that again. The reason that pride cannot give you an everlasting joy is because you and I are not God. And when we put our faith in the things of this world, including ourselves, they will always fail us, disappoint us, and rob us of our joy. And I think wrath is a perfect indicator of our pride level. What happens when somebody else gets all the credit? Someone else has the position, someone else gets the compliment. What happens to your emotions when those things happen? Are you joyful or are you angry? Again, I believe that your emotions provide a spiritual state into your condition. Let me give you an example of my own life. An example from way back when. Uh, When I was in the Marine Corps, I was getting ready to pin on my first lieutenant bar. So it was my very first promotion in the Marines. And... Dora, Captain Dora, was going to promote me and Lieutenant Alvarez at the same time. And he came to me and he said, hey, Lieutenant Bell, I'm promoting Lieutenant Alvarez first. I'm pinning him first and you second. And I was like, well, why? Because, number one, I had commissioned about a month earlier than Alvarez. I had been at the duty station longer than Lieutenant Alvarez. And at that time period, Marine Corps, few the proud, hello, in my humble but accurate opinion, I thought I was better than Lieutenant Alvarez. And I'm like, why does he get to be pinned first? And he says, well, because he's a Naval Academy grad. And I was like, mm. I was furious. Furious. The audacity that he could be pinned before me because he went to the Naval Academy. What did that reveal about my heart in that moment? Pride. Pride. It was an outward resemblance of something that was taking place deep within my heart and soul. And the reality is that at that time, my heart was filled with pride. And sometimes it's still filled with pride. And yet, while it might have brought a temporary joy, it's just temporary. You see, the reality is that every single one of us in this room is searching for the one thing that finds that brings us pure joy. And you will never find full joy and fulfillment in yourself. The only place that pride is vanquished is at the cross. And when we peer into that empty tomb. The reality is that Christ and Christ alone is our ultimate fulfillment and joy in life. The way that our pride is put down is when Jesus is lifted up. The only way that our pride can be put down is when Jesus is lifted up. You know that there's actually one other time in the Old Testament that we see the words joyful and glad of heart. And it comes out of 1 Kings chapter 8. Listen to the words of the people of Israel in 1 Kings 8. But they are not, uh, because they're not used in the context of Haman. Listen to what it says. On the eighth day, Solomon sent the people away. And they blessed the king and went to their homes. Joyful and glad of heart. Now ask the question of the text, why were they joyful and glad of heart? Here's the answer. For all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. Did you see it? It was the goodness of the Lord on display that brought them gladness and joy. And everlasting gladness and joy. Brothers and sisters, today the greatest act of God's love is seen in the work of Jesus. Christ lived the life we couldn't live. Died to death, we rightly deserve to die and was victoriously and gloriously resurrected to save us from our sinful pride. And when God changes your heart to believe that truth, you will find a joy that lasts forever. And that joy that you find in Jesus will begin to play itself out in the way that you interact with others. Recently, John Piper wrote a book called Come Lord Jesus. And he made this wonderful argument that I've never heard before. He says that once Jesus comes back and he resurrects all of his people, at that point he is going to remove the presence of sin in our lives. And he says, and the reason that he has to remove the presence of sin in our lives is so that we can truly and fully enjoy his return in each other. And he said this, when God comes back... When Jesus comes back and we are completely fully redeemed for his glory, he is going to remove that sinful residue of pride in us. And this is what's going to happen on that day. On that day when we stand before God as Christians and we receive our rewards, I'm not going to be angry if you get better rewards than me. You know why? Because my pride will be erased by that point. I'm going to be so much more excited and joyful for the rewards that God is giving you, not worried about what I have or have not received. I'm just going to be so glad that I'm going to see the rewards that God has given you, that to me, that's going to bring me even more joy than what God's going to give me. But here's the reality, brothers and sisters. If that's what's coming, then I believe that God is working on that that same principle in us now. God just doesn't say, well, that's the future. I believe God is progressively sanctifying us towards that future. And so the reality is, is that I believe that Christ is going to do that in his coming. He's working on that right now for us in our current lives and reality. In other words, God should be removing our pride each day. So that all the good things you get, all the good compliments that come, you should be like, I don't really care about them. But when you hear others get compliments and when you hear others things people talking good about other people or other people have greater gifts than you then you say that brings me great joy because it honors the God who saved me from my sin. What would the church look like in America if we were more joyful at the accomplishments of others rather than the accomplishments of ourselves? What if we really lived our lives understanding what Paul says Do not be arrogant, be humble. Because of the gospel of humility. Treat others more significant than yourself. Our joy in Christ, I believe, is an everlasting joy that allows us to find happiness and joy in others instead of feeding the pride machine of our hearts. The opposite of pride is humility. And it's only through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, that our hearts can be truly repudiated of the evilness of pride in order to embrace the fullness of gospel humility. So number two, second thing we'd see in this text is that pride has to be constantly fed. In my notes, I wrote, feed the beast. Pride has to be constantly fed. We see this in verses 10 through uh, ten and 12. Haman doesn't do anything to Mordecai at that moment. So he goes home and he brings all of his friends and his wife into his presence. You see, the reality is that when pride is knocked down, we have to find ways to build it back up. So look what he does with me really quickly in verses 11 and 12. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions to which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. So do you see what Haman is doing? His pride bubble got popped when he sees Mordecai, so he brings all of his friends, he brings all of his wife, and he shows him his splendor. Because when your pride is hit down, you've got to figure out ways to build it back up. Pride is a beast. It needs to be constantly fed. I I thought about it this way. Pride is like the cookie monster from Sesame Street. It's just gobbling up all the time. It's got to be fed. It's got to be fed. It's never satisfied. You ever seen cookie monster satisfied? He's not. He'll eat 10 cookies and then he'll eat 10 more cookies. The pride monster has to be fed. And not only does it have to be fed personally, it also has to be fed publicly. The proud person has to constantly reveal how amazing they are so that others will buy into the identity that they've made for themselves. In other words, pride needs the affirmation of others. And this leads us to one of the greatest insecurities of the proud. You would think in your mind, right, like pride is confident. Actually, pride brings insecurity. It's like it's like it torturous to think about that. Pride actually brings insecurity. In fact, one of the reasons that it brings insecurity is it puts us in a constant state of fear. We become afraid that others are better than us. We are fearful for that others won't buy into our greatness and affirm what we think about ourselves. Tim Keller in his famous book that is out there for free for you said, anything that's overinflated and is in imminent danger of being deflated is like an overinflated balloon ready to be popped. Pride brings a fearful insecurity of being either found out or seen less than what you think about yourself. And you know who gets this the best? Madonna. I told some friends yesterday that I was talking about Madonna in my sermon. and They were like, oh, what? Like, you have to listen to it online. Madonna gets this best. She understands this. In fact, Tim Keller writes about Madonna in, his, in the book that I'm sharing with you. Uh, and she had he had he inserts in there an uh, interview that they had done from Vogue magazine on Madonna And the reality is that i'm not trying to make fun of Madonna Actually, I think she understands herself better than you and I understand ourselves Madonna understood that pride and ego have a fearful component to them Because they're always afraid of being lost or not living up to the standards that they have. This is what Madonna says My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. And my struggle has never ended. And I guess it never will. Did you see it? First time I actually heard that. Uh, it was from J.D. Greer. He said that same, he said this one time and he talked about Vogue magazine. And I'm like, I didn't know J.D. read Vogue magazine, but I found out I think he was actually reading Tim Keller. Cause that's where he got the illustration like I did. Pride, as we hear in the words of Madonna and seen the life of Haman, has to be constantly fed in order to give us meaning, purpose, and joy. And the reality is that pride, we don't understand that pride is a black hole that actually sucks the life out of us. Because going back to point one, the only way that our identity is secure and brings true joy is when we find our identity in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Listen, pride unchecked, unrepented of, will literally drive you crazy. It's like a teenage boy. He can always eat, but he never gets full. But pride not only wrecks havoc on your soul, it also seeks... To wreak havoc on others. And this is the third destructive truth we see in this text. Number three. Pride leads to the destruction of others so that it can be seemingly satisfied. It leads to the destruction of others so that it can be seemingly satisfied. Read the final verses with me in verses 13 and 14. Yet all this, he says, is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at that gate. His wife and all his friends said to him, Okay, we'll let gallows of 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then look at the reversal. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Haman says that with all the possessions I have, with all my places of positions, they are worth nothing as long as Mordecai is there. This is where that idea of pride is competitive comes out. The competitive reality of pride is what we see. We look, he, we look, he sees, he sees, okay, I've got all these things, but yet even though I have all these things, just because Mordecai is there, they're not worth anything. People say, well, okay, well, what do we got to do to get your pride back to its level? What do we got to do to fulfill your joy again that you had in verse nine? And they come up with this terrible idea. They say, we'll just kill Mordecai. We'll hang him on the gallows. 50 cubits is actually 75 feet. Some authors think that that was true. He was going to build 75 feet gallows. Some think that it was just a measure of his pride. The reality is, whether you go which way or the other, doesn't matter. The point is that in order to alleviate and elevate, I mean, in order to elevate Haman's pride, he has to show Mordecai's death publicly. Then and only then will he be able to get back to what he thinks are his emotions of pure joy. They say in order to get back to joy, you've got to kill Mordecai. Pride, if you want to know the truth, is socially murderous. To restore pride, you have to put others down. You have to be more than likely a verbal murderer to elevate yourself. Many of us are not like Haman, where we're going to let our pride go and cause murder. But does James not talk about the poisonous nature of our tongues? He says that in James 3.8, that when we curse others, we are murdering them with our words. That's why James says that the tongue is a deadly poison. And sometimes in order to elevate our pride, what we do is we speak murderous lies or murderous realities about others to build ourselves up. Think of it this way. In order to build your pride, you have to destroy others. Pride leads to hate. And the reason that pride leads to hate is because, remember, pride, proud people are insecure people and have great fears. And the reality is that more one fears, the more one hates. The greater the evilness of your pride, the more fear builds. And the fear is that there are others who will deflate your God-like mind. Therefore, anyone who is better than you, gifted than you, has different things than you, whatever the case may be, is considered a threat. A threat that ought to be hated and eventually neutralized. Do you see the destructive nature of pride in our lives? And pride is everywhere. It's in our culture. The humanism of the renaissance is real. It is still alive and well. Humanism came out and said basically there is no God. We are gods and we make ourselves into our own image. The idea of the renaissance and the humanism that came out of the renaissance is this. Man will make himself great. We don't need God. We are our own gods. Our pride says we build our culture in our image. Our pride says that every man, woman, and child can do what's right in their own eyes. That's the reality of our culture. Don't you agree? That the sins that we are seeing being acted out right now in our culture, I think are coming from a root of pride. A pride that says, I am God. There is no God. You see this clearly in the statues. I think art has a way of helping us shape the ideologies and understanding of our culture. When I was in high school, I went to Florence, Italy on a high school trip. And I remember going to Florence, Italy, and we went into a uh, cathedral there where Michelangelo had, they had put a whole bunch of Michelangelo's sculptures. And I remember walking down this hall, and on each side of the hall, there was these there was these sculptures of men. And the men were actually looked like they were coming out of the stone. I mean, amazing how he did that. I don't know, I mean, he, that hammer and chisel... You know, like we today, we have 3D printers like I could do it that way on a computer, but like he is doing hammer and chisel. And it's amazing. It's it's the idea that these men are stepping out and the reality, the reality that he was painting in that or not painting. He was sculpting in that moment was this for everybody to understand man by himself will tear himself out of nature and free himself from it. In other words, man will be victorious. And then at the end, when you come through that hallway and you see all these men coming out of the stones, you come to one of his greatest masterpieces of all time, the statue of David. Let me tell you, I've seen that thing in real life. It is breathtaking. But do you understand what he's really saying in that moment? Do you understand what he's really trying to portray to the people through the art of humanism? Francis Schaeffer, one of the greatest Christian philosophers, said it best. He says this, that David was the statement Of what the humanistic man saw himself as being tomorrow. In this statue, we have man waiting with confidence in his own strength for the future. Even the disproportionate size of the hands says that man is powerful. That we can do what we want and live as if there is no God. Let me tell you something, friend. If you live your life as if there is no God, he has created in his moral order the ability for creation to bite you back. You don't do things God's way, it will break you. It will hurt you. It will crush your soul. The reality is that in our culture today, the underlining sin that we see in the art of Michelangelo is the art of pride. The anti-God state of mind. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, culture is not the only place that pride is real. I believe it is real even in our churches, in our pews and in our pulpits. It's a restless evil that Satan loves to use to bring division and strife in God's bride. It is a restless evil that brings destruction. Why? Because pride is a what? Killer. So what can be done? I don't want to make this sermon doom and gloom. Because the gospel says there is no doom and gloom. There is always hope. Where do we look? What is the remedy for the sin of pride? Well, we look no further than Jesus, beloved. Jesus, God in the flesh. If anyone in this world had the ability to walk with all the pride he wanted, his name is Jesus. God in the flesh. But yet, how does he walk this earth? Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Jesus. In his own humility, removed the penalty of pride. He is renewing you and I by removing the presence of pride in our lives. It is only through the Gospel that we truly understand humility. Jesus' death on the cross swallows up the destructive nature of pride. In other words, think of it this way. The killing of Jesus killed the power and the penalty of sin of pride in our lives. And when we live humbly... In response to the gospel, our lives are designed to bring glory and honor to him, not to us. And when we understand that, that my life is to do whatever I can to bring ultimate glory to God, then I am willing to talk to humbly with him. Because no longer is it about me. It's about who? Him. It's about him. It's about his church. It's about his mission. It's about his calling, not me. I believe that God exalts himself through the repentance of our pride. All who repent of their pride and put their trust in the work of Christ will be saved from the destructive nature and be given the power to walk humbly in the power of the spirit. The power of God reverses the sin of pride and cultivates the virtue of gospel humility. Brothers and sisters, this is what this is how God calls us to walk with each other. Paul says in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It's the power of the gospel that allows us to say with all integrity, he must increase and I must decrease. The only way that you can truly say that with your heart is by God's grace. Only that God can open your eyes to the true and everlasting joy that he brings to you in Christ. And when you receive that joy, he produces humility. Unlike the mantra of humanism during the Renaissance and Michelangelo's sculptures, man will not make himself great. Jesus' love for his people, displayed through his life, death and resurrection, begins to sculpt man into the image of himself for his glory. So take away this. If you truly believe and resonate with the gospel, when you live your life for God's glory, you no longer have the desire to live it proudly for yours. So how do we respond to a message like this? Number one, I think some of us in this room, we just need to sit and repent. Again, I don't want you to think that, oh, Jeremy is perfect in his humility, because that's called false pride, right? Right? I'm just as guilty. But I ask that God would remove it over and over again because I want to be about his business for his glory, advancing his kingdom, his church, for the goodness of his name, for the greatness of his name, Philippians 2. The reality is I can't save any of you. I can only point you to the one who can. Some of us need to repent of our pride today. But number two, some of us just need to believe Some of you in this room, maybe your pride is keeping you from putting your faith in Jesus. I pray today that God would just knock that pride down and that you would humbly come and put your trust and faith in him. But some of us in this room as well, some of us also need to repent in obedience. By saying, Lord, no longer is it whatever I want to do. What would you have me do? I believe that humility, when gospel humility is present in your life, you desire to walk a life of obedience. Not I, but you. What do you want from me? And then lastly, as we get ready to come, we are going to take a moment to humbly walk up to communion. This is a humble time where we come to the elements, to the table, to be reminded of what Christ in all of his humility did for us. When we come to this table, we come not as, this is what I'm doing in order to receive God's grace. No, this is what we are doing to remind ourselves of God's grace in our lives through the humble work of Jesus. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take two minutes. Bow your heads, close your eyes, and you you just spend time right now. I don't know what the Spirit is speaking or saying to you, but you just spend time right now interacting in prayer with Him. Maybe that's one of repentance, belief, obedience. Maybe it's just a moment to say, God, I don't know where it is. But through your word, would you please shine that light on where that pride is sitting in my heart? So you work with the Lord right now. Close your eyes, bow your heads, and you work with God. Father, I come before you on behalf of all of our people in this room. Lord, even myself. Lord, I know, I know where my pride can get the best of me. And Lord, even as I stand before your people to just present your word, I pray that they understand that I'm coming with humility and that you constantly work on this in my own life. Of course, I am not perfected, but I am being perfected in you. So, Lord, there are many people in this room who are wrestling with their own propensity towards this particular vice. Father, I know that we come and we feel the weight of our pride and our arrogance. But, Lord, even as I reminded myself this morning as I was praying. Lord, that it's because of Jesus that my pride has been dealt with. Lord, even though that I might still falter and fumble and stumble, Lord, that does not remove me from your hands. Because I am safe and secure in Jesus. And it's his identity that I'm trying to cling to more and more each day. So Father, I pray, just as I pray for every single person in this room, Lord, that we would be obedient servants. Speak, Lord, for your servants are not only listening, but ready and willing to obey whatever it is you command us. We ask that you would lead us. Lead us by the power of your spirit through the truths of your word towards what you would have us do. Father, may we never get to a point as a church where we are all about the name of sinner church. May people see that Center Church is a place where we are trying to exalt the name of Christ. Even in these seasons of growth, may it, may it not lead us to arrogance and pride. May it lead us to a humble posture that says, the Lord did this, and it is good in our sight. So Father, I pray now as we examine ourselves, as we get prepared to come to the table, to remember The one who had all the ability to be proud humbled himself. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled in the new covenant for you. And Father, as we take this time of communion here in just a moment, that we would walk out with that same type of gospel humility into our workplaces, into our schools, into our families, into our homes wherever you lead and guide our steps. So, Father, make us more like Jesus from the hearing of your word. Do not let it return to you void. And I pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.